0: And if you feel like it, leaving us a review to help more people find out about us so they can figure out where they fit in addressing the problem of climate change.
1: Today's guest is David Wallace, co-founder and CEO of CODA Farm Technologies, which provides remote monitoring and control for agricultural irrigation pumps and irrigation reels. The looming water crisis we face is often described as one of the major symptoms of climate change. The western U.S. is currently facing the largest mega drought in a millennium. The Colorado River, which provides water to some 40 million Americans and provides much of the irrigation for some of the most productive ag land in the U.S., is in an existential crisis. Lake Mead is at 25% capacity, and groundwater across the U.S. West is being depleted rapidly. I was looking forward to talking with David at Coda Farm Technologies, which is on the forefront of selling irrigation efficiency tech to farmers, to understand how farmers are thinking about all of this. And I was gobsmacked during this conversation to hear that cost savings due to water efficiency isn't even a key selling point for him when talking to farmers. And that's because of how agricultural water is priced or not priced in much of the US today. We have a really interesting conversation about the state of agricultural irrigation in the U.S. and about how he's found that helping farmers with time savings and automation is what's driving his sales at present. I learned an absolute ton and hope you do, too. David, welcome to the show.
2: Hey, thanks for having me. Good to be here.
1: Well, David, I'm so intrigued by what you're building and and the backdrop of what's going on with water in much of the U.S. I live in California, so definitely the Western U.S. I grew up in Kansas, so grew up around farming communities and just understand, obviously, that access to water has has almost felt like a fundamental right in a lot of the United States. And it feels like we're on the precipice of this changing somehow. And so I feel like your technology at Coda Farm is really there to help us manage through a realization that water isn't just this free resource that's wildly abundant for everybody all the time. And I'm interested to dive into some of that. But first, maybe uh, tell us a little bit about you and about your background. And I, I believe you started the company with your brother and you two grew up on a farm together. So I don't want to steal all the, the thunder of your backstory. So maybe share a little bit about all that with us.
2: Sure. Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, so my brother and I grew up in Skagit Valley, Washington. It's primarily a farming community up in the Pacific Northwest. We were actually both homeschooled for quite a few years. I was homeschooled at least part time for eight years. And a good chunk of that education was on the farm. You know, I started driving tractors and kind of cruising around with my dad and grandfather when I was about 12 years old. And it was, you know, part of daily life growing up all throughout high school and even during summers in college as well. So it was, a, it was a tough decision after college to leave that, but I went off to Johns Hopkins University to pursue a career in chemistry. I ended up getting a PhD at Hopkins in solid state chemistry, but knew that I didn't really want to continue doing research or you know, being a professor.
1: It's good to hear that like being at home at school didn't deter you from education in any way. You clearly found out how to embrace it and take it to its fullest potential.
2: Yeah, yeah, I guess so. I mean, had a lot of freedom in homeschool, and so you know we covered the core subjects quite a bit, but then a lot of it was you know learning how to self teach things, and so I, I think that that's served me and my brother pretty well. So thanks to my parents, if if they're listening to this or seeing this for for doing that, but anyway, yeah. So you know, wrapped up in graduate school and realized that I had a pretty strong skill set in data analysis and programming. And so I was able to transition over into the big tech world. I worked at Amazon for about four years as a data scientist, machine learning type person. And that was also super useful because I just, you know, was immersed with a lot of really talented people. But ultimately, toward the end of that time, I was realizing that I really wanted to get back to my roots, so to speak, and really learn more about how the farm works and about how agriculture works in general so I, I quit that desk job and went back to the family farm full-time in late 2018 and yeah that's that's really where almost immediately coda farm technologies got kicked off and you know my brother during that time had kind of a, a similar background he went off and got a degree in physics worked as a software engineer and then you know I had this thing that I was working on and convinced him to come back and do it with me so
1: you guys were ahead of the trend of the Great Resignation, I guess.
2: Yeah, just, just slightly. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a funny thing. We actually incorporated the business right at the start of the pandemic, right when lockdown happened. And so it was, yeah, it was, it was pretty timely, I guess.
1: And so being back on the farm, how did that inspire you with the idea for what you wanted to try to pursue?
2: Well, you know, it didn't really inspire me, so to speak. It was more that this problem just kind of got thrust in front of me. It was, you know, January. So we had just finished harvest and had a little bit of downtime. And and my dad was like, hey, you know, we have this really pesky problem with our irrigation systems. They're super failure prone. We spend a lot of time chasing them around. They're really wasteful. They damage our crops. And I feel like we could fix this problem. We just need to go buy, you know, a monitoring system of some kind, and so I was like, "Sure, yeah, I'm sure that's easy to find. I'll, I'll see what's out there, and you know, get a couple of different versions, figure out what works best." But what I found when I started doing that was that nothing existed for us, and so I was, you know, equal parts excited and, you know, maybe a little bit nervous to go off and build something. But the prototypes that I that I built were just a really simple sort of messaging system that could tell us if a piece of equipment was malfunctioning and then the critical piece was if there was some kind of malfunction or if that if the sprinkler stopped moving as it was supposed to it would then send a message to our service which would send a message to the pump that was you know potentially a couple of miles away and tell that pump to turn off so that no water would be wasted and the crop wouldn't be damaged. So that was really how it how it got started it was just a problem that was really pesky on our farm and something that needed to get solved. And it kind of snowballed from there.
1: I mean, I think for so many listeners who you know are listening and have dug into various parts of what's going on with climate change, a lot of parallels between what you're describing and what's been happening in terms of smart metering and smart paneling of home and commercial and industrial buildings over the last maybe five-ish years. Where, you know, on the energy side, we've also gone from a world of, I don't really know what in the world each of these different things I'm using are doing from a consumption perspective to having very granular level understanding of each utility or each appliance on your local panel and then being able to even control individual level items. It sounds like water is following a similar pattern just a few years later. Is that a correct way to
2: think about it? Yeah, I would say definitely. And this is kind of a self aggrandizing comparison, but I liken it to what Nest did for like the home thermostat. It's, you know, a piece of equipment that's in everyone's homes. It's probably been there for ten to twenty years. And just by adding a simple piece of electronics that's really just got a switch in it that can be controlled in an automated fashion, you gain huge efficiencies and you also gain this new control over over your your home thermostat that you didn't have before. And so that's really what we're, we're trying to do with farm equipment. They're pieces of equipment that are replaced often once in a generation. And so you can't expect them to have any sort of electrical equipment or remote monitoring on them. And so when we bring a really simple, retrofittable device to that, it kind of opens up a whole new world of possibilities that come with big efficiency gains.
1: And the, the primary piece of farm equipment that you work with, I think there are two pieces, right? There's the pump and the reel. Is that, is that correct? Maybe for those of us who don't know a ton about farm irrigation, maybe walk us through what farm irrigation looks like today.
2: So farm irrigation on our farm is actually not the way that it's done throughout most of the world. And that's what made this you know, a pretty good market entry point for us as a startup. The way we up in Skagit Valley irrigate a lot of our crops is through this thing that's called a hard hose irrigation reel. You can think of it as like one of the hose reels that you might have mounted to the side of your house. Basically, you, you turn it and it recoils that hose up, except on the other end, there's a sprinkler that's on wheels. And so that sprinkler is pumping out water in an even pattern as it's being towed slowly across the field and so they can cover about 10 acres in a day or in 12 hours and so you can you can cover about 24 acres with one which is a good area of land but they're entirely mechanical systems you know so that's it's driven by either a gasoline motor or some kind of water turbine that's that's generating that necessary energy to pull that sprinkler across the field and so as a result they can fail, they can stop moving for a pretty large number of reasons. And when that does happen, that sprinkler just stays stopped there in one place and continues to pump out water at sometimes 400, 500 gallons a minute without the farmer knowing because that, that reel or that sprinkler can be, you know, 30 miles away. And it's not that this can happen. It does happen. It happens a lot. And from our data now, we know that it happens between 5 and 10% of all the times that you irrigate with one of those machines. So having remote monitoring, alerting, and automatic pump shutdown, it's almost a must have at this point with that type of irrigation. So that's what we started with. They're manufactured by small manufacturers throughout the world. There's, I think, like at least 10 in the United States alone and they're very regional. And so it's a super fragmented market and our solution works on any one of them. So it's a great way to add that advanced functionality to the existing equipment. So that's what we started with. And then we, as our hardware and software platform have evolved, we've expanded to now being able to control different kinds of pumps, being able to monitor things like flow rate, very accurately monitor pressure, control things, you know, turn things on and off and open valves and and things of that nature. So there's a pretty broad variety of things that you can do with our hardware and software and and we're expanding that pretty much as quickly as we can. So that's that's kind of the introduction.
1: (laughs) Super appreciate it. And I want to come back to your product and and really dive into it. But I want to turn our attention to the the broader backdrop of why farmers are paying more attention to this now. You mentioned this is equipment that you may only replace once in a generation, not your technology, but just the broader irrigation equipment. I saw a quote today in an interview in ProPublica with a guy named Jay Famiglietti, who's the he's actually the chief scientist at a startup called Waterplan that's been on the pod. MCJ, we're an investor in that company. He's the chief scientist there. And his quote is that, water is the messenger that's delivering the bad news about climate change to your city. And that really struck me as thinking about, you know, climate change can feel kind of abstract, but like having water issues is very real. I mean, to me, living in California, wildfires is the thing that's hitting us right now, but it's very clear that water issues are coming next. And I'm curious for you, you know, as you talk to farmers, what are you hearing from them in terms of how they're thinking about irrigation and what is most top of mind today?
2: Mm, sure. Yeah. Well, so what I hear from farmers really varies by region. We have gone down and visited you know, places in Southern California that have been dealing with water stress and, and drought for a long time. And they have a really high degree of technical and data competency. They have great controls in place. They use the most efficient, you know, drip tape. And, you know, they're largely very optimized and very conscious about the water that they're using. But then you go to different areas of the country where water stress and, and drought have not historically been an issue. And farmers don't really know or care how much they're using. And that's that's not a knock against them. It's not to say that they're less climate conscious than others. It's just it's not something that they've had to deal with. And they're already under so much other stress in different areas of their business that it, you know, hasn't made financial or or time sense for them to invest energy into it. And then the other thing to think about is water rights in a lot of areas have been defined for a very long time. And I'm not well versed on the history of this, but I know that in some areas, farmers feel and, and believe based on their water rights that they actually have to use the water or they'll lose access to it. And that that is true in, in many cases. And so you get folks that are choosing crops to irrigate simply because they can, they can use the water on it, like alfalfa, super water intensive crop. So yeah, I mean, that's really the takeaway. It varies by region. And it is interesting to see how That has accelerated in recent years with historic droughts, you know, last year throughout the West, and we were hit super hard in the Pacific Northwest. And then now what's happening, you know, with the the Colorado River and with Lake Mead being so low, it's really kind of crazy to see how this problem has been thrust into the public eye. Yeah, I mean, John Oliver did a story on it like (laughs) two weeks ago. And so it's, it's just interesting to see something that we have been hearing for, you know, as long as I can... Remember that water is going to be the next big scarce resource. And now seeing that actually come to pass in a lot of areas is really, really interesting.
1: Yeah. I mean, just the, some of the facts again, I pulled them from that ProPublica article I just recommended. So, you know, certainly people dig that up if you get a chance. But, you know, the Colorado River supplies water to 40 million Americans. And, you know, of which then a lot of that supplies food production to a lot of the rest of the country, right? Particularly in the winter, I think. The Western states are providing a lot of the winter food to the whole country. And I saw information that, I think it was earlier this year, the Bureau of Reclamation, basically, which is a U.S. federal agency, said that the seven states that draw water from the Colorado River have to find ways to cut their consumption by as much as 40%, or the federal government will do that for them. Which is really interesting, like federal legislation on water use doesn't feel like something I've I've heard come up, but it sounds like we may be on the cusp of that.
2: Yeah, it's very wild. And, you know, 40 percent, you can't get there without touching ag- agriculture in a major way. And I mean, that's going to be very contentious. I can't speak to how that's going to play out. What I will say is, you know, there I think the metric that gets thrown around a lot is that 80 percent of the nation's freshwater supply is used on farms, and in many cases up to half of that usage can be wasted to things like you know runoff evaporation and even just overwatering and so there are very clear ways in which farmers can reduce their consumption without too much impact to their daily work you know if for farms that are using center pivots they can switch to different nozzles that reduce the pressure requirement and increase the droplet size there are obviously data driven ways that you can make more precise decisions about how much water to irrigate but i think for a lot of farmers it is going to come down to how you know what kind of impact those changes are going to have on their their bottom line and on how difficult it is to run a farm and so you know this is this is one of the reasons why with our product, when we're talking to farmers, we don't heavily emphasize the efficiency gains that you're going to get. It's more about how it's going to improve your daily work, how it's going to impact your yields, and how it's going to save you on things like gas and labor. And so that that immediate impact on just day-to-day life and bottom line, I think, is what can drive a lot of efficiency in ag and water use versus top-down cuts and mandates about how much water can be consumed.
1: We're going to take a short break right now so our partner, Yin, can share more about the MCJ membership option.
3: Hey folks, Yin here, a partner at MCJ Collective. Want to take a quick minute to tell you about our MCJ membership community, which was born out of a collective thirst for peer-to-peer learning and doing that goes beyond just listening to the podcast. We started in 2019 and have since then grown to 2,000 members globally. Each week, we're inspired by people who join with differing backgrounds and perspectives. And while those perspectives are different, what we all share in common is a deep curiosity to learn and bias to action around ways to accelerate solutions to climate change. Some awesome initiatives have come out of the community. A number of founding teams have met, nonprofits have been established, a bunch of hiring has been done, many early-stage investments have been made, as well as ongoing events and programming like monthly women in climate meetups, Idea Jam sessions for early-stage founders, climate book club, art workshops, and more. So whether you've been in climate for a while or just embarking on your journey, having a community to support you is important if you want to learn more head over to mcjcollective.com and click on the members tab at the top thanks and enjoy the rest of the show
1: all right back to the show are we seeing significant price increase in the cost per gallon starting to happen or is i mean again probably depends on region but in general how are the economics of water playing out with farmers right now
2: I actually can't speak to that very well. What I will tell you is I, I think you'd be surprised by how few farmers actually have to pay for the water that they're withdrawing. In a lot of cases it's actually unmetered. And that's definitely the case for groundwater withdrawals, which are, you know, coming under more scrutiny.
1: Yeah, and I think groundwater, to some extent, I've I've heard there's a little bit of robbing Peter to pay Paul, which is, hey, the Colorado River is really low. So, okay, stop using water out of the river. Instead, we'll start sucking it out of aquifers that are also, you know, going to be running dry. And so there's, yeah, the economics of water feel like a total black box to me that I'm I'm just starting to try to understand. And, And it feels so critical because it's how we all eat.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think they're a black box to a lot of people. I don't think you're alone in that.
1: And do you foresee a world where either... I mean, today, farmers can grow whatever they want. No one says, ah, you you know, you can't grow almonds here or you can't grow carrots there or, you know, oh, this is only for lettuce. Like, do you foresee a world where there becomes restrictions on what can be grown where? Or do you see a world where we take what we've done with oil, which is build huge pipelines and actually transport water from, you know, you mentioned some parts of the country. You don't even have to think about this because you know, some parts of the country are actually experiencing too much water because of flooding. Like, do you think there's a world where we're actually physically moving water around the country or are we shifting what has grown where?
2: I don't see a world in, you know, you'll have people <laughs> following up and saying oh, it's definitely going to happen, but the sheer volume of water that you need to move to make a dent is really staggering. So I don't see that ever being cost effective. I mean, ultimately it's an energy problem, Right. If you have infinite energy, you can just have desalination plants everywhere and and get all the water you need from the ocean. And so moving millions of acre feet of water is not ever going to make financial or energetic sense, I think. So, no, it's going, you know, it's ultimately going to be probably driven by a supply constraint and growing things like alfalfa in the Arizona desert is not going to work anymore. It's it's not going to be profitable. Now, again, I I can't speak to what the mechanism behind that supply limitation is going to be, but yeah, it's difficult, (laughs) difficult to know.
1: No, it's super interesting. So, you know, what I'm hearing is a lot of what I hear in climate, which is, you know, especially if farmers are able to use groundwater where they're not even, it's not even metered, they're not even paying per liter. Like the externalities of their choices are definitely not baked into the price of water, much like, you know, the fossil fuel industry hasn't had the externalities of carbon emissions baked into the price of drilling and producing oil. And, you know, these are all things that are shifting in the energy world. It sounds like there's starting to potentially be policy level awareness of this at the economic level with water, but we're, you know, sounds like maybe two decades, a decade or two behind where kind of the energy world was to some extent?
2: Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, so I think the problem with just, you know, capping the amount of water that a farmer can use or dictating what crops they can grow and and what they can't is giving them the tools to actually be able to use the water that they have efficiently. And I think the necessary equipment upgrades to gain the necessary efficiencies are cost prohibitive for a lot of farmers. And they're also, in a lot of cases, too complicated. You know, you could say it'd be amazing if every single farmer could irrigate their crops with drip irrigation. But, you know, that's not even physically feasible for a lot of crops. And so, you know, the next might be center pivot. Install the most efficient center pivot systems wherever possible. That's very, very expensive, and many farmers just, just can't afford that. And then, you know, one of the additional sort of state-of-the-art things that's it's promised but not practiced a lot is true variable rate application of water. So where you do have one of those automated center pivots actually being able to apply down to, you know, the square meter or even acre level, the amount of water that's required by the crop in that specific location it is not something that's accessible to a lot of farmers because it's cost prohibitive. You know, the sensors exist, the controls exist, but it's hundreds of thousands of dollars and a lot of, you know, probably training and and maybe even hiring to achieve that. So
1: And you said earlier, like selling efficiency doesn't seem to be working for farmers or working for you in terms of getting farmers interested. And I presume that's because people have been trying to sell these products for a long time. And they're just too expensive for the average farmer to implement. Plus, again, if they're not even necessarily paying for the cost of their water, like at the end of the day, what, you know, everyone wants to be good stewards of the land. But, you know, it's not like the economics of being an agricultural steward are easy to begin with. And so you've got to make hard choices. So what is working? What is how are you going to market with farmers and you're selling them technology that can help them? You said, you know, of the type of equipment you were using on your farm. 10 to 15% of the time it was malfunctioning essentially. Not your equipment, but the irrigation system was malfunctioning. So huge efficiency gains, but how are you actually getting farmers to pay attention to it?
2: You know, it's it's definitely a challenge. You know, when we first founded this company, we were operating under the assumption that if you show farmers a great product that is gonna help them, or if you show that to their local dealers, that their dealer is automatically gonna want to carry your product and go and tell everybody about it. But that is not the case at all. Reaching farmers is actually pretty hard. We are having success with digital marketing using platforms like Facebook and Instagram and, and Google. We have great word of mouth, which is nice. You know, when when farmers use your product, it gives them such a tangible benefit in their day to day work that they're compelled to tell other people. So that's fantastic, but. You know, there's no, I, I wish there was a way that you could blast out to the, you know, the farmer, U.S. farmer Slack channel and just say, hey, put this on all of your <laughs> irrigation equipment. It's going to save you. Well, and what's the, what's the
1: value prop for them, though? The, you know, you mentioned word of mouth is working, social media's, digital marketing is kind of working. What are you actually selling if you're not selling, hey, this, your water bill is going to go down?
2: Yeah, so it varies by farmer. So a lot of the farmers who use Our types of irrigation systems are relatively small farmers. They have maybe a couple hundred acres and it's just them and maybe one or two farmhands. So the biggest value prop to them is just the way that it makes their life easier on a day-to-day basis. So they don't have to get up in the middle of the night to go and check on the irrigation system. Instead, they can pop open their phones and see that it's doing what it should be doing. Or... They don't have to sprint across the field to turn a pump off because a, a pipe has burst. They can open and, their phone. And again, and turn just it to off.
1: underscore the concern, at least to most farmers today, isn't, oh, I'm using too much water. It's oh, this part of my field is getting flooded and this part of my field is not getting enough water. And so I need to know that so I can make sure that my crops are producing as I expect. Is that exactly. is that correct? Yep. Okay.
2: Yep. And it's, you know, in a lot of areas, it's not even overwatering is is not a concern. It's about how do I get water to all the places that need it with limited resources. And so if you can if you can figure out a way to make that day-to-day operation more efficient, then you can give them a way to more efficiently allocate their water. So for larger operations, there are, are very clear economics in terms of how much labor you save and how much fuel you save on a day-to-day basis and that's that's another pretty big benefit you know one of the surprising things is just how much driving people do in you know old pickup trucks that are probably getting 12 miles per gallon just to go and look at all these things and so if you can save them six trips a day to a field that's 10 miles away you've you've reduced a lot of fuel usage and a lot of labor too and so those are the things that we find work really well. It's daily quality of life, more efficient day-to-day operations and then savings that impact your bottom line on things like fuel and labor And so this is why you know I was really shocked when I put together the Excel spreadsheet and calculated how much water we're actually saving because it's a staggering amount and so I kind of have this I have two different ways that I talk about our business, because one is the way that appeals to farmers. And then the other is the way that, you know, I think is actually truly important in the grand scheme of things. And when we're talking about climate, which is water savings and carbon emissions reduction. So, yeah, that's an interesting thing.
1: Such an amazing aha for me, at least to understand that the economics of water usage honestly isn't even really affecting the bottom line of farmers today, but it's all the other ancillary Not time savings right. and yeah. That's super interesting. And so let's talk about your product in particular. You know, I saw on your website it doesn't require any mechanical installation or anything. It's a, a fairly simple add on that I assume has, you know, an acoustical listening device or something that is sensing when water is on or off. Is that correct?
2: since when water is on and off, we have a pressure transducer that we supply and it, it's a common fitting. So you can just add it into the port that's already on your equipment. You might need an adapter, but it's a pretty straightforward thing. And then, you know, we have developed a proprietary method of detecting when the reel is in motion and when it isn't. And it uses magnets and a special kind of sensor. And then we have other things like, you know, GPS and it has its own embedded cellular connection and there are a variety of other sensors that, that we can use as well. So, But yeah, at, at the end of the day, you can install it in about 45 minutes on pretty much any piece of equipment. And we have videos that show that process from start to finish on, online. So that's really the key is being able to put it on anything and do it quickly in the field.
1: And how are you pricing it with farmers today?
2: we actually unfortunately just had to increase our prices. So we're in the low $1,000 range for setting up an individual system. I think it costs like $1,200 to retrofit a pump and about $1,300 to retrofit a reel. And then we have an annual subscription that it varies by installation, but the highest it goes is $360 per piece of equipment per year. So that the recurring fee is what farmers often balk at and other folks in the industry have chosen to completely front load that so basically they'll sell the same same rough you know package that we're selling but it'll cost $3000 and that's because they're front loading 8 years of their service and you know probably a pretty significant markup at the front but not charging a recurring fee we find that because we have such clear ROI that that recurring fee is just a better way to ensure that we're improving the product continually, getting a more you know, predictable revenue stream and reaffirming our commitment to, to farmers year after year versus just selling them something that's one and done.
1: And from a go-to-market perspective, what are the types of, of farmers you're starting with now and, and how do you see that changing over time?
2: I mean, yeah, it's it's largely dictated by what geographies use those hard hose reels that we started off with. And now we are just starting to expand into the more broad pumping market as a whole. So before, you know, there were probably less than 10,000 individual farms in the United States and Canada that could potentially use our service. And now we're expanding to probably north of a quarter of a million potential customers.
1: And I assume you mentioned that the people using the equipment like you all had in Washington was mostly small family owned farms. And as you, as you expand your product suite, are you now hitting larger, more commercially managed farming companies as your customers?
2: Definitely. I mean, anyone with a few, you know, small exceptions, any farm that's pumping water it can now use our equipment on their pumps. It's just a really simple way to control and monitor things remotely. And we're adding features to it every day that are going to help with efficiency gains, not just in water, but labor and fuel and, and all of that. So yeah, pretty much any irrigated farm now can use Farm HQ on their pumps.
1: And what's been the most surprising to you, David, as you've, as you've been building the business? What assumptions did you come into it having grown up on a farm that as you got out in market, you've learned, whether it's technical assumptions, whether it's sales assumptions, market development assumptions. I'm curious, what has proven to be a huge aha for you that has helped you all take the business to where it's going now?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think probably the most surprising thing is from the sales perspective, from the sales side. We, like I said, we anticipated that every farmer's local dealer would be interested in carrying something that's an easy Sell that—that that there's clear ROI on, and that's just not the case. You know, a lot of dealers, especially with technology products, they worry that there's going to be support burden. They worry that they're going to have to actually go out and do outbound sales, which is not something they like to do anymore. And it's also just not a big ticket item. They want to go out and sell the John Deere 8 ser- 8R series tractor, which is going to be a quarter of a million dollars and get them a really nice paycheck, not the little Farm HQ boxes, which is you know, gonna give them four or 500 bucks a pop. So that's one side. The other side is we've been really surprised by how many folks are willing to be early adopters of a a new technology on their farms, just from seeing an ad on Facebook or hearing about us on, you know, the radio somewhere. So that's pretty cool.
1: And how much of that do you think is being driven by generational change of people on the farm? I don't know how old you are, but whatever. You're you're a younger guy and, you know, you've moved back to your family farm and started working with your dad on it. And, you know, you've got a whole generation of baby boomers who are hitting retirement age and younger kids and grandkids who are coming of age. Many of them, you know, aren't continuing to live in small farming communities. They're moving to bigger hubs in whatever state they live in. Maybe not huge cities, but, you know, larger cities. But I'm sure there's, there's a decent amount of generational change that's happening on these local family farms as well. And I'm curious how your sales conversations are reflecting that also.
2: You know, there, there is a good amount of generational change. And we have, you know, a handful of farms that are led by guys my age and younger. But for the most part, I don't think there's enough of that happening, to be honest. I think that it is increasingly difficult to get the next, you know, my generation to come back and, and stay on the farm. And, you know, the fact that I've had to leave the farm, leave the farm to focus on this company is a prime example of that. So that said, the modern farmer, you know, he's my dad's age or older. He has a smartphone that he knows how to use. He or she is probably not super interested in like the super high tech data platform, Which it seems to be where a lot of the development in ag tech is going these days. Everyone wants to own all the data and be the platform where everybody's gonna look at all the layers of data, right? What they are interested in is something that gives them control or a really insightful look at something specific on their farm. And so, you know, that's what we're trying to focus on. Yeah. And then, you know, this is just kind of anecdotal, but I have this guy, Sam, who's a customer out in Michigan. He has one of our devices. And during the season, he calls me once a week and we just kind of talk through like, you know, a question he has, or or maybe something isn't working right. Or maybe he just wants a recommendation on something that I probably don't even know about. But, you know, it's, it's fun to talk to him because I, I get the direct feedback from somebody who's older and is, really trying their best to keep their farm up to date with the latest tech. And so that's that's fun that, that we get to have those discussions with people.
1: That's awesome. No, nothing better than talking to your users, for sure, in terms of learning what's going on with your product.
2: Yeah, sometimes talking, sometimes yelling. You know, depends on how their day's going.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, and David, you, you all recently announced a seed round, I believe led by Lower Carbon. How did you make the decision to try to go the venture route for scale?
2: You know, it was pretty clear that we were going to need to do that. Building an actual hardware product, a cellular connected hardware product, and and being able to manufacture that at scale is is not a leap that we could have made without some significant investment. And so we recognized after building the first 50 devices in the garage that we weren't going to be able to scale it without a significant additional investment. And so that's when I went out and started pitching and ultimately met with lower carbon and it was it was a great fit for us they saw our mission and you know saw what we were able to ch- achieve on in terms of water savings and so it just ended up being a really good fit and yeah it's been great
1: and what what do you typically achieve in terms of water savings like is there anything that you're able to share in terms of data
2: yeah i mean i'm working on it right now you know looking at the the metrics for this last year so there are a couple of pieces to this but i'll just give you the high level average so for an irrigation reel that has automatic pump shutdown enabled we're able to achieve about 450,000 gallons of water savings each season so that's i, I wish i had a quick comparison for what that means but it's something you know it's more than any one person is going to use in their lifetime definitely And yeah, so it saves about 1.7 acre feet per system that you install per season. So it's pretty significant. It's one acre of water, one foot deep.
1: Oh my goodness. Wow.
2: Yeah. So the the Colorado River, I think, has an annual flow of like 21 million acre feet, something like that. I'm probably going to get that wrong. But overall, it's, I believe, about a 10% reduction just from installing our device. You can increase the efficiency of your system by 10%. And then what, I, what I'm surprised to see this year is that there are actually, I don't want to say behavioral, but cultural practice changes that also are correlated with usage of, of our system. And so between customers who use our system with the automatic shutdown feature enabled and those who did not, we reduced their water consumption by 22%. And so I, again, I'm I'm cautious there to say not that we caused it, but that it's correlated with, because I can't you know eliminate any biases that are inherent in that. But,
1: and I'm guessing also there's some other positive sort of behavioral slash cultural changes that happen, such as, you know, if you don't have to drive around to all of these different irrigation pumps every day, you can on your phone turn them on to happen early in the morning when it's less hot out and you're getting less evaporation, et cetera. So just generally speaking, you could probably also use water more effectively, even water that's not, that you're not counting because it's already making its way out of the hoses, but it's actually being absorbed into the ground more effectively.
2: Definitely. Yep.
1: David, what didn't I ask that, you know, you think people should know about what you're building or, you know, the problem set in general?
2: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's tough to say. It's been interesting to try to start a company in this space because the irrigation control market is really dominated by a few pretty large players and there's a lot of consolidation that that happens pretty frequently. So, it's fun to I think that we're building a pretty innovative product here and I think it's better than what is in the market. But yeah, no, it's I guess that's the only thing that I didn't touch on is what the industry looks like. And so, you know, for us we're we're definitely a little guy trying to be disruptive.
1: Yeah, maybe take a minute and spell out, like how is your product different than what's sort of the incumbent solution in the market? Yeah,
2: I mean, what I see out there is a lot of, you know, like the big irrigation control systems are tailored primarily to either drip irrigation. So Netafim is a big player in that space. They really automate drip irrigation well for things like greenhouses and, you know, even small outdoor farms. And then in the center pivot space and even solid set sprinkler space, there are a few key players, primarily Valley Irrigation. They make a platform called AgSense that's kind of becoming the industry standard in in pivots. And then there are, you know, there's like a couple of others, but in general, it seems that they are really trying to get broad market dominance by building products that have the ability to integrate with. A huge variety of things. And in doing so, they've kind of created these systems that have way too many inputs for what the common farmer needs, and just too many bells and whistles. And ultimately, it's quite confusing. And so what I hear from a lot of farmers is they want something dead simple. And we're playing around with a tagline, which is like, as simple as the dirt you're watering. So something super simple, and something that you know doesn't have a lot of things that they don't need. And so that's really what we're focusing on. And we're trying to focus on building a clean and simple user interface that that ties into that and makes it easy for them to control and monitor their equipment.
1: I super appreciate you coming on today. And I learned a ton about what value props are resonating with farmers today as it relates to water. And I just feel like this is going to continue to be such a crucial issue in terms of where climate change actually meets reality for all of us in terms of how we how we eat and how we you know, continue to have access to fresh, clean water. So David, thanks a million for coming on. And if there's anything any listeners can do to be helpful, I don't know if you have any key roles you're seeking or or looking for other things, but, you know, definitely take a minute to, to tell us about that.
2: Yeah, we are hiring for, you know, boots on the ground sales in in key geographies. We're also looking for folks to lead our digital marketing efforts internally. And then we're always looking for good engineers for everything from firmware to front end user interfaces. So check out our website, look at our careers page. And if you see something that piques your interest, send us a message. David, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Cody. It's been great.
0: Thanks again for joining us on the My Climate Journey podcast.
1: At MCJ Collective, we're all about powering collective innovation for climate solutions by breaking down silos and unleashing problem-solving capacity. To do this, we focus on three main pillars. Content, like this podcast and our weekly newsletter. Capital, to fund companies that are working to address climate change. And our member community, to bring people together, as Yen described earlier.
0: If you'd like to learn more about MCJ Collective, visit us at www.mcjcollective.com and if you have guest suggestions feel free to let us know on twitter at
1: mcjpod thanks and see you next episode